Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good afternoon and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Michael Pappas, Executive Director of the San Francisco Interfaith Council. I'll be your moderator for today's program, Helping Refugees, Welcoming the Stranger. It's really wonderful to see such a a large audience today, and it bears testimony to the fact that in these most divisive and polarized times, never more than the present is such a topic more timely for discussion. It is perhaps one of the most important and significant social justice and civil rights issues of our times. We find ourselves in San Francisco, California, a sanctuary city. And before there was a sanctuary ordinance, there was a sanctuary movement. And it was people of faith welcoming political refugees, those who out of fear fled their countries looking for sanctuary. When this new administration came into being, It's very interesting that social services were put in jeopardy. Those cities claiming to be sanctuary cities were at risk of losing funds for critical services. And organizations such as mine joined an amicus brief bringing a suit against both the President of the United States and the Attorney General and emerged victorious in that suit. Now we find ourselves at the dawn of the 2020 census. And the big question is going to be, who counts? And I think that that is something that will be a backdrop for today. But to help us make better sense of the nuances and complexities of this issue, we are fortunate today to welcome a distinguished panel of experts. Allow me to introduce them. Dr. Karen Ferguson, Ph.D., is a clinical psychologist and executive director of the International Rescue Committee. Karaman Mamand is a doctor of juridical science and international legal systems. Hassan El-Mazri is a volunteer filmmaker. And Aisha Wahab, an Afghan-American human rights activist and Hayward City Council member, most recently elected. So without further ado, Karen, would you lead us off in the conversation? Absolutely. Well, welcome, everybody. So again, Karen Ferguson. So I'm the uh, Executive Director for International Rescue Committee here in Northern California. International Rescue Committee, or IRC, is a global humanitarian aid organization. We work in over 40 countries overseas, and within the United States, we're working in 25 cities nationally. We're one of the nine agencies that are designated by the Department of State to provide what is called refugee resettlement. So I'm going to start with the definition of a refugee, just to give us a little bit of grounding, take us through a little bit of the numbers and an understanding of uh, who is coming to the United States right now, and then talk just a little bit about refugee resettlement in general and what happens here in Northern California. And we'll do that all just within you know, 10 minutes, so it'll be fine. Uh, so a refugee is somebody who has had to flee their country due to what's ca- called a well-founded fear of persecution due to one of five reasons, race, religion, nationality, social class, or political opinion. Bottom line, it's somebody that often is coming from a country that is torn by war, violence, oppression, persecution. And so they not only have to leave their own homes, but they actually flee such that they leave their country. And so they may end up in some second, third, fourth country where they are being given some uh, landing place in a limbo. Any refugee in that situation wants to go home. And so the hope is always that the country conditions will change and they'll return home. For those that cannot return home, they sometimes get absorbed into one of those other countries. And for a small number, it is less than 1% of any individual who is uh, waiting as a refugee um, globally, they might get refugee resettlement, which means that they're actually airlifted to uh, one of about 22 different countries globally who accept refugees. So we'll come back to that in terms of refugee resettlement in a minute. People often want to understand asylum status as different than refugees and what is different. So an asylum seeker um, or somebody who's granted asylum has that same definition. They left their country due to persecution, due to one of those five reasons. But they, on their own ability, get to another country, present themselves, for example, in the United States, to the government and ask for asylum 
in the country that they want to stay. So that is the big difference. Hence, people fleeing, for example, from the Syria conflict and going all the way through, uh, whether it's passing through Greece, whether it's trying to get to Germany, wherever they're getting to, they're presenting themselves for asylum and asking to stay in that other country rather than being in a refugee resettlement process. And the third group to really understand are what are called special immigrant visa holders, because that's a very important group, especially to us here in Northern California and in California generally. Special immigrant visa holders uh, right now have come from Iraq or Afghanistan, but primarily from Afghanistan at this time. And these are individuals who are standing up for what they believe in in their own country and the values of their own country. And they're working with U.S. forces, whether they're working with military forces or they might even be working on something that is uh, funded as a grant through U.S. funding. Um, And in that process, they become in harm's way. So they're in country, they're, they're trying to provide support for their country, but they become in danger themselves or their family members, and they can apply for what's called a special immigrant visa. If they're given that visa, then they can either leave on their own recognizance or they can come through refugee processing. Either way, if they come to the United States, we then give them the same level of benefits that we give any other refugee. So let's switch a little bit to U.S. refugee resettlement. So refugee resettlement really came out of World War II in terms of the United States, but the U.S. did not sign on to the U.N. Convention until 1968. And it was really in about the 1970s that you started to see large numbers of individuals coming to the United States as refugees, often supported by the faith-based organizations and community. And so in the 1970s, we often had in a given year more than 200,000 individuals coming here, a lot of them from, for example, the Vietnam War, uh, that were seeking status as refugees in the United States. So by the late 1970s and into 1980, the U.S. Congress decided that it might be a good idea to actually have a more federal program to make sure that there were appropriate standards in place and to actually have a sense of the numbers to understand what it was going to mean to bring a refugee here and to do it in a proactive and planful way. So out of that came the Refugee Resettlement Act of 1980. So from 1980 on, we have very clear numbers of what's called a presidential determination. The presidential determination means that the president, at the beginning of every fiscal year, the fall of every year, sets a ceiling number of refugees, and then that that amount of numbers gives us the federal appropriations, the money that's going to be available for the nine named agencies to provide the services hand-in-hand with the community. It's called a public-private partnership. So those numbers since 1980 have been uh, generally average about 90,000 as the ceiling. It's not a quota. It just means that that's the amount of funding that we have to support the community. And in general, starting in 1980, the ceiling would be set and the pipeline, the actual number of people's arriving, would meet the ceiling. So that has been the way it has been held since 1980, very bipartisan supported. Actually, the highest ceilings were under Reagan and Bush. In in, uh, uh, 9-11, obviously, there was going to be a concern about security. And so the the ceiling actually stayed fairly high. The ceiling stayed at 70,000. But due to all the changes that we needed to put in place to to really amp up the security clearances and the process of welcoming people here, the pipeline dropped. And so that was the first time we had a gap. So 70,000 was the ceiling. 55,000 was the number of people that came in that first year after 9-11. And we've been slowly creeping up since then to really match the ceiling and the pipeline again. So under the last years of the Obama administration, we had 85,000 as the ceiling and brought in 84,995. And we had then a ceiling of 110,000. But that was the year of the transition to the current administration. And so in that year, we brought in 55,000. This past year, the ceiling under the current administration was 45,000. That is half of the historic average. And the pipeline was severely constricted. So we actually only received welcomed 22,000 people. This year, so that was a historic low of 45,000 for the ceiling. This year, the ceiling has been set at 30,000. For Northern California, to bring you into refugee settlement a little bit in the last couple minutes here, Last in 2016 to 2017, 
We uh, welcomed 3,063 individuals to Northern California. Um, about 85% were from Afghanistan. This year, I will hope that we get to 1,000. So it is a dramatic drop. In San Diego, the numbers were 1,200, 300 a year, and now we're hoping for 200 individuals to come. The number of Syrians has plummeted. So we had brought into the United States 12,000 Syrians at the end of the Obama administration. This past year, 60, 60 individuals were brought nationally under refugee resettlement to, from Syria. So it has been deeply, deeply concerning. Refugee resettlement really just means that when that person is airlifted here, we know about them as one of the agencies. We go to the airport and we bring them to an apartment that we have already secured for them. We have set it up with donations from all of you in terms of uh, bedding and furniture and mixing bowls, uh, including a warm, culturally appropriate meal the first night they get here. Um, and then we're really their guide for the next three months, getting their children in school, getting them connected medically, and getting them um, uh, ready to uh, start to look for a job. Uh, in our early employment program, 80% of refugees have a job within six months of landing here. Uh, and then we do a lot of, of longer-term programming, so we're very embedded in the community. We provide immigration services and financial literacy services and gardening programs and psychosocial mental health programs. And so all of that are very, very important programs, not always just open to refugees, but to the larger immigrant community. So my last statement is that it's very important to understand these numbers and to understand refugee resettlement because as the numbers go down, the question, of course, from all of you is, so if that, does that affect the funding? Yes, severely. And would that be okay? Because if we're resettling smaller numbers, wouldn't that be all right? And the answer, which we can discuss further, um, you know, depending on your questions is no, because one, all of these people that I just told you about 3,000 people came just a year and a half ago and there was 2,000 and a half before that and 2,000 before that. So there are a lot of people in the community that still need a lot of services to integrate well here and to become self-sufficient and to be able to become full contributing members to our community. And, and second, as I just mentioned, we have a lot of programs that go way beyond just the welcoming of an individual. And so we need to keep that capacity so that as we move into whatever is going to happen after this administration, we're able to continue being a vital part of the community and of welcoming any individual who's coming to the United States from outside. Thanks to Dr. Karen Ferguson for her comments. Uh, and I was told we're allowed to be a little shameless if you would like to offer a website that people could uh, access uh, if they wanted to make donations of any sort. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So you're going to come here right afterwards to, to me. I have uh, wonderful pictures of uh, refugee girls that have great websites on it and my business card. And that website so, would be? Uh, the, the, we'll just say that we'll go to rescue.org backslash Oakland. Okay, wonderful. Not, yeah. mm-hmm. Our second panelist is Karaman Maman, a Kurdish-Iraqi educator and human rights activist who recently became a doctor of judicial science in international legal systems. Dr. Karaman. Thank you. Uh, fellow Commonwealth Club members, most welcome guys, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for attending. Uh, regrettably, the international community doesn't have a well-founded standard to deal with this crisis we're talking about currently. That's why we have seen outflows, increase of refugees around the world. And uh, if you look at the government, still they have a leading role in dealing with this crisis exactly. The the government still can't let people uh, go back to their home country or even displace people inside their home country to go back to their home and start their daily life. There's a multiple causes what this makes this phenomena it's like war if you look at the history if you look at the specific countries with a major source of these refugees look at iraq syria afghanistan look at the history of wars in this country so there's a connection between the history of wars and the, the immigration meanwhile the violation of human rights the major source of refugees is from northern africa and middle east Specifically in the countries, they have a nature of a human rights violation protection throughout the history. If you look at the 
And ironically, in these specific regions, if you look at the specific countries with a clean record of human rights violation, they produce less of refugees. However, there is a case which is related to Latin Americas, regardless of the brutality of nature of these states, they've contributed less in the refugee crisis. And the, the government stability, unfortunately, the international community, the performance, modest performance regarding how to make this failed state successful state. If you look at the developing country, they produce more refugees. If you look at the developed country, they produce less refugees because they have really well structured political and economic system. Because the economy, it's, it was a conjunction with a political term oil, accelerate the displacement of people and refugee increase around the world. The, because if you look at the economic factor, millions of people have been displaced because of the economic hardship. Even the Syrian revolution sort of related back to the drought in some part of inside Syria by itself. So if you combine all these factors together, still the international community doesn't have a well-structured plan how to deal with these causes to reduce the amount of refugees. That's why the refugee crisis became one of the major threats to international peace and security. If you look at the international legal system, of course, the refugee doesn't have any place in the customary international law. However, the phenomenon of a refugee, it's not a new phenomenon. It has been there throughout the history. If you, because the violation of human rights accompanied the race of the modern state. So ever since the race of the modern state, it has been a systematic violation of human rights in these such states. Uh, unfortunately, one of the the main dominant principles of the international relation, which dated back to the of the peace of Westphalia, which is non-interference in the sovereignty or non-interference in the internal issues of specific states. However, if you look at the during or after the post Cold War, the international community have seen more conflict than any other time before in human history. This which lead to the a, a huge amount of violation of human rights and produce the large number of refugees around the world. This concept lead to the sort of reconsideration about the matters which is specifically related to the specific state and reconsider these matters is not no longer is only internal matter, it's going to be international, regional matter. Especially after the Cold War, there's a huge amount and there's a, a, a extensive attention or media production working with the violation of human rights in a failed state or a state policy in the specific regions around the world. This creates a movement around the world that lead to international community have a right to intervene specifically in the cases or in the places that the, the, the factor of producing the immigration or the economic hardship or especially the violation of human rights lead to the regional or international crisis. If you look at the specific, if you look at in an economic perspective, you look at the third world countries, which is a provide, provide uh, like produce the more, more uh, immigration because these countries they have a system which is the post-colonialism. There is a feature in the system, it's benefit the political or economic for specific elites. And the rest of the country, they have to suffer economically and politically. So if you dig back to that, you see there, this structure lead to the different types of conflict inside these specific states. Even if you look at like some... Uh, ethnic or minority inside these specific states, they are not satisfied. They're seeking secession from the central government. They are completely looking for new, different political system fall apart from the central government. If you look at the history of the Kurdish fight inside Iraq and Turkey, they are exactly seeking the same thing. And uh, in some other countries, the indigenous people trying to have a better position politically and economically. They are not seeking exactly completely different political entity.
In some other examples, the different religion and ethnic groups, they are fighting for more economic and political powers. Who's going to be first? Who gained more powers? And millions of people have been displaced and killed in these conflicts to, regarding of these different religion and minorities. They're fighting for more political and economic powers. Look at the Lebanon. Look at the history of Yemen or Syria, Iraq, Sunni, Sunni, Shi'i. They are all fighting inside the same political entity to gain more economic and political, even military power, if you look at the Lebanon or Iraq specifically. So after the Cold War, it, this has been changing. So the international community now paying more attention, and there's a movement uh, that lead to intervene if the specific example or the brutality of specific state leads to displace the entire population. As a witness, we have seen in northern Iraq or southern Iraq in 1991 how the brutality of Saddam Hussein led to displace the entire population, which is no longer internal or regional crisis. It became the international crisis and which is threatening the international peace and security and threatening the international stability as well. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Thank you, Dr. Bauman. Thanks. Um, our third panelist is Hassan El Mazri, a Palestinian filmmaker who assists refugee artists and volunteered in Greece to help refugees. Cool. Hi, everyone. My name is Hassan El Mazri. I am uh, one of the co-founders of Zuinia, a nonprofit organization here in San Francisco based. Uh, we focus on equity and sustainable change. Uh, we work with refugees and mainly we focus on another thing, which is documentary, document their stories, um, whether it's through music and art, and um, I will explain as we go how things and why. And I spent about 10 years working for cooperation here in uh, the Bay Area. Uh, I'm a network security consultant. I do network design and implementation. And at some point, I was thinking about why am I doing what I'm doing every day, every day, every day. And... <laughs> So I was thinking about life changing and, um, you know, great to fit into societies where, you know, you're making a good paycheck, you're paying, you know, for everything, for retirement, you're happy, all good, all great. Um, until someday I ran to a friend, a photographer who had gone to Greece to volunteer with refugees and take some photos about the crisis, which is still currently going on. And when he came back, um, I saw one of his presentation, and he had asked me about if I speak Arabic. I said, yeah, I do. He's like, what are you doing here? He said, what do you mean I live here? He's <laughs> uh, like, people from Syria, they probably need your help to translate, do whatever you can. Just go there. Spend some time there. Just around the same time, I was thinking about doing some changes in my life, so I did. I went. He had given me a 22 years old um, phone number, Amir, from Syria. <laughs> and so I'm like, all right, what's well, a good start? I'll start with Amir. I called him the second day I got there. I had jet lag the first day. I couldn't really figure out what's going on. But um, I called Amir. He came, and we met at Ammonia Square, which is the center in central Athens. And um, so we talked a little bit. We had coffee, and it's like, well, let me show you around. So we went around Asin and we were looking at this abandoned school where um, refugees are staying and they have been opened by uh, anarchists, the, a group, self-organized group in, in, in Greece. Actually, they're all over Europe, probably here, I don't know. But they are um, helping them to get places to stay in, opening the schools and um, providing some probably food for them and other uh, needs, basic needs. So I shaked hands, sorry to hear that, you know, I was telling people and, you know, but I, I felt like I was just like emotional support. I was like, what can I do? You know, I'm not going to help him with, there's no computer to help with or anything like that. So I needed to do something. So I asked Amir, I said, Amir, what can I do? Well, how can I help you? Well, you're already helping. You came all the way from United States. You're walking with me around here drinking coffee. It's great. You know, I'm like, yeah, but this is something I can do. Um, What's your situation? Why, you know, are you alone? And, you know, tell me more about you. 
So he said, oh, my father was with the government, with the Syrian government. He was defected from the government, captured, killed in Sadnaya prison in Syria. And my mom took us to Turkey. She had to leave us in Turkey, five of us. And she went to Netherlands to hoping to apply for unification. And it seemed like the only country in Europe that allowed unification for over 18 years old is Netherlands. So she made it there. The borders were open in 2015. And they were in Turkey, left behind all the kids working in a manufacturer, closing manufacturers, cutting the, the buttons, the extra string, I guess, for um, a Turkish manufacturer. So they saved enough money to pay the smuggler and cross to Athens. The um, smugglers were charging about $1,000 for each person, which is a lot of money for refugees. Imagine like $1,000. So anyway, they worked it out. They made it to Athens, and um, they were waiting for the Netherlands embassy to somehow magically call them. You know, uh, they had applied, but you have to call every Tuesday for one hour on a Skype phone number. And you imagine you have 50,000 at that time, if not more, um, refugees in, in Athens. So it's like better to buy a lottery ticket. Um, so I said, well, let's go to the embassy. Can we go to the embassy? Let's, let's see what we can do. So we did file, um, fill the forms, translated the forms. I explained things from English to Arabic, and there's some Dutch. Luckily, there's Google translation. We... We went through all this, and we made an appointment, and we um, made, you know, made it to the embassy. And um, while I was there, I saw a huge glass. Where's the consulate behind the glass? And I'm like, well, I don't know what to do. Hopefully, we did everything right. We filled all the form correctly. And I see a jazz invitation card behind the, the glass. I'm like, whoa, jazz, cool. You know, it says. <laughs> you know, and um, so the consulate, she's like, oh, where are you from? I said, I live in San Francisco. She's... Um, well, what are you doing here? I said, oh, I'm with the family, trying to help them out to see what, you know, what can I do here. And he's like, oh, let me see. What do you guys have? She took all the paper. I was like, oh, you need pictures. Go and get some pictures, some photos downstairs. So they did. They went, got the pictures, and we came back. And um, she took all the forms. And I was like, in my mind, I was like, wow, when you relate to somebody, like, and at the personal level, I'm talking about the music, jazz, and, you know, where you're from, San Francisco. I could maybe speak better than Amir English. And... Uh, we, when we relate to people, things makes it things gets easier somehow. It's much easier to uh, to get things done. So I told Amir, let's see, let's hope, let's see what's going to happen. And four days later, Amir called me in the morning. He's like, "Hey, we we'll get the visas." <laughs> I was like, "What? Really?" I did. I didn't know. I was crying, laughing, something. It was kind of mixed emotion. So we had to go on Friday to the embassy to pick the. Um, um, you know, the, uh, <clears throat> the passports, I've given passport. And so th this is one of the pictures that have, Mark, I mentioned earlier, have taken in the old airport. A um, bunch of kids. It's like very emotional for me to see that. And this is when they got the visa. <laughs> yeah, and it, it was like, wow, you know, I'm not, I'm helpful somehow. You know, I was so happy about that. And this is them. I took them to the airport to first day to, you know, Euronite with their mom. And that's Amir, almost a year and a half later. He had attended the mechanical engineering college. And that felt like, wow. <laughs> it's like we really could make a difference in people's life without knowing. Sometimes we don't see the results instantly, but it's going to be there somehow for someone. And... I came back, I shared the story with a lot of friends, and they're like, whoa, this is great. Um, let's, do, let's do something. So we invited uh, a international filmmakers here at the Roxy Theater in San Francisco, and then they filmed their stories about refugees in six different countries, and they, you know, they really, really like, want to connect with us. So we're trying to reach out about, you know, what can we do? Um, and... Of course, it was kind of like challenging for us. We didn't know like, we're starting a new nonprofit. I have no idea how to do this kind of stuff. And, but we get a lot of support from everyone, uh, from the community here, from friends, and everybody is getting involved. And 
So in 2016, end of 2016, my mother passed away in Lebanon, and I went back, and on my way back, I stopped in Greece, and I volunteered again for another month. And I discovered something totally different I wasn't expecting, and that was a child um, was upset sitting, and his father was like standing next to him. I, I said, whoa, what's going on? I asked the father, he said, well, he cut my fishing pole to make guitar. <laughs> like, wow, it's just everything comes together somehow, guitar, kids, and refugees. And so I came back here and I said, well, um, I need to do something with the music. I have a lot of uh, musician friends, and um, they said, well, go find musicians. So I went back. And it was hard to find a really something like we could work right away with. You know, we, we needed to... Um, um, some musicians, we could put their voice out there instantly. And that time, the last day, I find this guy, his name Hussein, which made just, like, it was perfect timing. We had just finished making a documentary about Hussein. It's called Emily. And meanwhile, you know, everybody here was organizing what, what we're going to do with all this information so far we have collected um, working on documentaries because we wanted people to know about, con you know, about what we're doing in terms of Bringing awareness, um, things that are happening right now, at this, at this time, we need to do something with it in terms of, you know, how can we approach it through art and music? Um, this is something really, I'm not, this is another topic, and I know I don't have much time, but this is something very important, world trauma. We have seen a lot of kids tra traumatized with, um, through because of the war, and... Um, so this is what we have been working on. We've been working on uh, documentaries through cultural exchange and music and performance. And we have built also um, C-Studio, which is an online platform to, for musicians to collaborate um, with you know, video conference. Everything is, all you need is just the internet, basically. And, and you could do it with the phone. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now, back to our program. Last but not least, uh, Aisha Wahab is uh, an Afghan-American human rights activist who was recently elected to the Hayward City Council. We had a wonderful conversation prior to this, and I'm very much looking forward to your remarks. Thank you. Okay. Um, so thank you for being here. Thank you, Celia, um, Commonwealth Club. Um, I will say that uh, my name is Aisha Wahab. I am also a board member of the Afghan Coalition, a nonprofit that serves uh, new arrivals and immigrants uh, in the southern Alameda County area. Um, it has been open since 1996. And I will, just because we had so many great facts, I'll just go into the people um, aspect of it. As an Afghan American growing up, uh, and I want to just kind of make you guys relate a little bit more. Um, Every single person in this room, different ages, different backgrounds, different communities, the Afghan people, regardless of age, every single living member of the Afghan community has experienced war one way or another, whether they are a child or they are a senior. Really understand that. 40 years of war, nonstop, whether it's a civil war, whether it was the Soviet invasion, or whether it's the current occupation. Um, I have given a number of talks uh, at the Commonwealth Club and uh, around, and um, I've often said that one of the biggest injustices to the Afghan people is the fact that if there is no justice, there is no peace. And many of the individuals in the current Afghan government are individuals that we have uplifted and legitimize their power by not holding them accountable for their human rights violations. Um, whether you want to talk about the CEO of Afghanistan, the vice presidents of Afghanistan, the members of parliament, or any other of the strong men in Afghanistan. 
Now, the Afghan community for the past several decades were the number one refugee population in the world. And um, the largest Afghan community outside of Afghanistan is here in the Bay Area. Now, a lot of people don't realize this. Even Fremont, for example, is called Little Kabul. Uh, a lot of electeds in uh, the Fremont area say that I can't identify Afghans unless I ask. And that is because Afghanistan was part of the original Silk Road. It has been invaded by Alexander the Great, by um, Genghis Khan, by the Soviets, you name it. There has been an invasion. There has been a mix of people. And so you will have Afghans that look very, very much different from each other. You know, blonde and blue-eyed, tanner skin, Asian features. Um, you cannot really fully identify an Afghan just by seeing them. Um, it makes it a plus and a negative in so many different ways. Um, the demographics, the reason why the census is so important um, and something that I do plan on working on uh, this coming uh, year or so is primarily because Afghans also mark the box that Nobody will, else will mark. We mark the box Middle Eastern, yet we're not Middle Eastern. We mar mark the box Asian because we're Central Asian, but nobody views us as Asian. We're not South Asian. We're not Far mm -hmm. East Asian. We are, um, we mark the box other. Um, some people say Persian. Some people say Afghan, you know. So our numbers are significantly dwindled down. And the resources that come to our community are not the equivalent of many other communities. We are a very small population. Um, and by American standards, we are not even considered a minority because we are also Caucasian. So the Afghan community always has a battle, uphill battle. <laughs> um, I will say that the Afghan community also has a lot of different ethnic uh, subsects, if you will. Um, we see each other as Afghan on the international stage, but internally we ask, you know, where are you from? What city are you from? What language do you speak? What region are you from? You know, who's your mother? Who's your father? Who's uh, your tribe? Uh, a lot of different issues that tear us apart amongst ourselves. Um, and I, I'm very, very proud to say that uh, the United States has has had a significant hand in the Afghan community, both good and bad. Um, you know, for example, being one of the first Afghan American women ever elected to public office in the United States, that can only happen in the United States, right? Um, my, my counterpart, we were uh, elected at, at the same time, Sophia Wazir was elected in New Hampshire, and she's a refugee, a new arrival relatively. Um, so it, the, the Afghan spirit is very much one that does not like to see itself as a victim. You will speak to any Afghan you, you can, and none of them will see themselves as a victim. The culture is very much a dominant culture, a dog eat dog culture. And, uh, you know, the chaos and, and things like that are very much fun for us. I, I will say that it's always interesting to have a couple of Afghans debate a topic, right? Um, you know, one of the things that I do want to say is that uh, as, as an American, we also have to understand that what we have done on the international stage, we are responsible for much of the refugee crisis. You know, um, I, I think I was chatting with you, and this is genuinely not a popular thing to say, but it is true. You know, uh, by the actions we take and the actions we don't take, we are responsible, especially, um, you know, during the Cold War, many people will not realize how intricate of a, uh, of a player we were in Afghanistan. During the Soviet invasion, there's this thing called the Great Game Theory. It is a theory, not really much a theory, it's, to me it's facts, um, about 100 plus years ago in the 1800s, when the British were the most dominant force in the world. Um, they had a Cold War themselves with Russia. And they were dominating the Asian lands for influence. 
As much as Russia was expanding its territory, the British were as well. Afghans have had three Afghan-Anglo wars. That has shaped the current modern state of Afghanistan in many, many ways. Um, you know, the, the British were also responsible for forcing out one of the most progressive kings in Afghanistan, where in 1906, pretty much, 1919-ish, um, in, in that decade or so, he, King Amanullah Khan, was the one that unveiled the women, saying that they do not need to wear a chadar. He advocated for women's rights over a hundred plus years ago. And the, the international community believed because he visited the Soviet Union that he was p potentially moving that direction. Um, that is not necessarily the case either, uh, as he <clears throat> stayed in Rome after he left the throne. Um, we have king after king that has been influenced by international players. And the United States, for example, was actually giving arms through African tribes to the Mujahideen to fight Russia. To make Russia bleed is what was the terminology. Um, China right now is a big player in Afghanistan. And the question is why? Why is Afghanistan such a big deal? And, um, you know, when I, when I go back and forth with my father about this, there's an old political cartoon with an Afghan king, the Amir, standing in the middle like this. And there is a lion walking around him and a bear walking around him. And I didn't understand the cartoon, but I loved it because it's a cartoon as a kid. And I said, I don't, I don't get this. He goes, the bear is Russia. The lion is the British. And I said, okay, well, they have such cool animals to represent them. What do we have? And he said, we're the human being in all of this. Mm. And um, that goes to show that we still have those players surrounding Afghanistan. And the reason why is because Afghanistan on a geopolitical map, if you will, we are the most important nation to be um, a part of in Asia. Strategically, we are at high elevation. We can put any type of influence there against Russia, against China, against India, Pakistan, and Iran. Now, today, the terminology of refugee is a dirty word. Years <clears throat> ago, it was a word that created some sympathy in people's hearts. And Afghanistan has been influenced by every single powerful player. And today is another great game. Again, Afghanistan has the world's largest supply of our future and most important minerals, lithium, right? Um, China has been investing in Afghanistan business-wise, and the United States has been losing in that front. While China is investing to get copper mines, get the deals for that, to be able to get lithium, to be able to get any of the future technologies that we're going to be using that rely on those minerals, the United States is losing. And that is some of the biggest concerns that we have in uh, Afghanistan is to what is the future outcome, especially now that the Taliban are in full legitimate uh, control of the fact that they can say that we want to be part of the peace talks. Thank you. Definitely. And now it's time for our question and answer period. And I would like to welcome Celia Menchel before we uh, entertain our questions. I'm sorry, but I'd like to take about three minutes to read you something that I feel is appropriate for today. The three Abrahamic faiths share the tenet that we must help the needy and welcome the stranger. And I, my personal opinion, believe that despite past and present hatreds, positive changes are slowly occurring. But 80 years ago, after my Jewish mother narrowly escaped the Holocaust with the aid of righteous Christians, I was shocked by Trump's concerning rhetoric and policies towards immigrants and refugees. Nevertheless, there are examples of interfaith kindness everywhere, including a Syrian homosexual who fled to the Bay Area to become an LGBTQ activist. When he spoke at the club, he told me that he was helped by the Jewish family and children's services in Walnut Creek, which also helps Afghan interpreters for the U.S. Army and their families. And the shooter in the Tree of Life massacre said he chose the Tree of Life to kill Jews because that synagogue helped Muslim refugees through the Hebrew Immigration Assistance Services. 
After the tragedy, Muslims were among the first to give condolences and donations. And shortly after the massacre, my small grieving synagogue in Walnut Creek held a community support service. To our surprise, the event was attended by over 800 caring people of all faiths and many religious leaders gave uplifting sermons. It was absolutely heartwarming and gave me some hope, despite the suffering of millions of those still seeking safe havens. Last but not least, February 1st to February 7th was World Interfaith Harmony Week, which is based on a United Nations resolution proposed in 2010 by His Majesty King Abdullah II and His Royal Highness Prince Ghazi bin Mohammed of Jordan. All around the world, organizations and individuals are invited to host events to help neighbors of differing faiths get to know each other and build a foundation for more peaceful and friendly communities that link people together in a global wave of understanding, respect, and action. Not to forget love. Thank you. Thank you. Please tell us about the Grace Act that Senator Markey is sponsoring. Oh, wonderful. The Grace Act. The Grace Act (laughs) by Senator Markey. So uh, as I mentioned, there is a presidential determination, which is a ceiling. That's what we set up in the Resettlement Act. And I I talked you through the numbers that 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 ceiling, you know, and, and extreme, the ceiling could be one. Right. So the the idea is that we we maybe need some parameters, as we've seen with this administration. The administrations could potentially not follow the historical path that has been in terms of America welcoming refugees. Mm -hmm. So the Grace Act just sets a floor for the presidential determination. We are suggesting 95,000 right now as honoring the the historical average that has been since uh, even the the 1970s. And whatever that floor is going to be, what it would mean is that when the president determines each year the ceiling, they can go as high as they want, but they would not be able to go below the floor. Senator uh, Kamala Harris has already signed on as a co-sponsor. This will be a very, very important way to ensure that in the future, resettlement uh, is not fully at the whim of, of whatever the administration is, is sort of putting forth. Um, and so, you know, I, we, we hope for uh, more support with it. You can look at the IRC Northern California website if you want to find out more information about the Grace Act, and uh, we will be following it closely. Thank you. Karaman, uh, this is to you. Um, please discuss the situation for Iraqi refugees, especially Christian refugees. Oh, thank you. Uh, fortunately, like recently, uh, about like four million people has been able to go back. I mean, if you look at uh, uh, the situation uh, from like 2013 exactly to 2018, dramatically how from like 100,000 to 67 million people has been displaced. So fortunately, 4 million people, but still 2 million people, uh, it still need to go back. And uh, 6 million people with need in Iraq right now. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, the majority of this population is located in uh, Nainawa, Mosul, and Sinjar, like Talafar, Duhok, Kirkuk, uh, Arbil, these provinces, which is the high, like this, it's exactly the Christian population located between these provinces. So if you see the bigger picture for Christian population, mm-hmm. so if you see the population between Mosul and Erbil and Duhog and Kirkuk, the people who mostly need it, it's exactly located in this specific location. But yeah, and uh, hope, and f- fortunately, most Christian people they we, they were be able to flee to Kurdistan, which is it became a safe haven for all minorities and religion, especially for Christian. Thank you, Hassan. You made reference to something, and I, I'm guessing this is where you were probably going to. But could you share with us a little bit about how the anarchist movement in Athens um, impacted your filmmaking? And, um, you know, I've seen those insignia. They're close to the Polytechnic Institute in Athens. Um, But if you could talk about that, that influence in terms of your work, that would be helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Well, what we witnessed there is that they have been organizing. It's a uh, self-organized. Probably most of you knows about uh, how Arnakist works. And 
And if you don't, it's actually a self-organized. There is no government. Um, it started it long time ago. I think I started in the 80s, the movement, mm-hmm. and uh, even probably before. But in 2009, there's um, 15 years old Alexander who was killed by the police in this town. It's called Exergia or this uh, neighborhood. So the neighborhood, everyone there voted no more police, no government in this area. We don't want any of that. So most refugees go to these places because also they don't want to deal with the police. So there is no police in that area, and it's like more free. Kind of, um, but they do support them. They give them schools to stay in. Actually, there is a whole hotel they have open for the refugees to stay in the hotel. And um, sometimes the jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are kind of pluses and minuses in everything, but at the same time, we have... We, we didn't run to any problem with anyone there. Like, everybody's welcoming, you know, you want to film here, you want to do this. Um, it was all great. Um, perhaps Margie, I don't know if I uh, would like to add something. She's, uh, Margie was one of the, uh, she's a musician, native San Francisco uh, artist as well. She was in Switzerland when she worked with us in the documentary. She came over to work with the refugees and making music, if you don't mind. Hello, everybody. I was there to assist them as a writer and a music organizer, and that's what I'm doing currently with them. And all I wanted to say about how anarchism works with the refugee crisis is that the Greek government has received $800 million in aid and been unable to manage the numbers of people, 55,000, I think. You remember your phone call on Skype? It's about on Tuesday, you have one hour on Tuesday to make a call to whatever consulate it is that'll have you resettled. And, you know, for this reason, I think that's kind of how the resettlement in, works in general. A lot of people that find themselves in Greece because of the refugee crisis are, if they are re- put, if they are placed somewhere, they're in these camps that are far on the edge of town, they're they have very poor facilities. They can be very badly managed, even dangerous. And many people are moving into abandoned schools that are organized by anarchist communities. And they they have weddings in there. They have schools for children and adults in there. They have opportunities to find employment from there. And they are just basically a self-organized resettlement program that is completely outside of the government. And I think we could see more of that. And they've they've provided us as artists with many opportunities for expression amongst refugees. What we do is we hope to facilitate that. Thank you. Thanks, Martin. And I can only imagine how the issue is exacerbated because of the economic crisis there as well. Yes, yes. I mean, the Greek themselves also having economic exactly. problems. Back to Afghanistan. Um, What would be your message to first-generation Afghans today who hope to help the current state of affairs in Afghanistan and newly arriving Afghanistan refugees? You know, that's a question I think our community asks, you know, ourselves every day. Uh, I think that what I always try to tell people is to take the best of both worlds. Many people feel that they have to be be completely one thing or another. And, um, you know, I don't believe in, in this particular piece. So, for example, um, the freedoms that we have in the United States are certain freedoms that no other country would give you, um, specifically women. Um, I always tell young Afghans to definitely uh, educate yourselves. Education is the one of the, the biggest equalizers in this world. Um, and with new arrivals, I always tell them to uh, try to understand that you are in a country that is safe, that you can, you know, focus on your family and things like that. The only concern that tends to happen mm-hmm. is that when you discuss <clears throat> Afghan politics, everyone uh, tends to disagree, right? Um, So that is always a a concern there. But, you know, one thing that I always try to impress upon people is the unity, that 
in America, we are all different sitting in this room. But at the end of the day, we are American. We want the best for, for this country. We want the best for our families. And we want the best for our neighbors. Um, and in Afghanistan, they need to start getting out of the mindset of thinking of their tribes, of their region, of their language, and thinking we are one nation, one people. Let's, let's figure out how we can move forward. So that, that is the one component that I think will make Afghanistan a far better country and a far better people. Wonderful. Thank you. Unfortunately, we ha only have time for one more question. And out of fairness to all four of you, I found a question that each of you can get the last one. <laughs> How's that? What would be your call to action for the community today, given the current state of the refugee crisis? So for me in resettlement, I think what is vital, especially because we are California, and so we have been an extremely welcoming community and state for all immigrants, for uh, that, that is a point of pride for us as a state. And so as the federal government steps away right now from this, we as a community need to step forward even more. And so stepping forward means uh, to consider giving of your time. It means to consider giving financially because it is devastating what is happening in terms of some of the, the federal changes in funding. Uh, and to give of your advocacy. And advocacy meaning, sure, know about the Grace Act, but also advocacy in terms of taking the information that you've learned here and to share that with more and more people. The more people that we have informed, the more we can continue to bring back a pride in American values. So fixing the refugees issue is going beyond the issue by itself. So it's an individual issue. So if you're thinking at the end of conflict, the refugee will be fixed issue, it's old-fashioned thinking. It's individual. The refugees need the social care. They need health care, education, food, all individual needs in a specific community. Sometimes these needs it goes beyond the specific international organization capacity. Because in, in, if refugees in a far future, they're thinking about their family and they will be settled in a specific country, it's going to be hard for them even after conflict to rehabilitate, to going back to their country of origin. Even it's risky. And what's a guarantee? It's 80% of Syrian refugees around there are not considering going back to their home country. However, over 80% of Syrian refugees around the world, they are below the poverty line. Well, the... Thanks for the 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 method we're trying to take in terms of refugees. Like I always feels like we're patching problems, not solving what's the root cause of this whole things. And we believe culture is a huge impact. If we try to understand one another, different cultures, um, there's so much wealth in art and music we have seen so far. So much to tell. So many stories. And this is very important, and it's critical to have and keep these cultures in terms of um, how we approach one another. And um, I think we should pay attention a lot of attention to a war trauma, especially with younger kids uh, who have been, who have seen dead people who have gone through war. And this is very important, and um, it, we. We witness a lot of issues in Greece with these kids, and I think, I hope, all of us can do something about it. Thank you. Um, Last but not least. <laughs> I, I definitely believe that we need to regain who we are as Americans. Um, you know, I, I mentioned now today that the word refugee is a dir dirty word, if you will, right? We are um, putting fear in the hearts of people. Uh, you know, even the emergency act today is ridiculous, right? And I will say that for you guys being here today, it just shows the curiosity you guys have to learn about other people. And we need to definitely feed that piece of it. Um, I think Dr. Madeline Albright said that she travels uh, back and forth across this country and there's enough space on our land to house more folks. Um, you know, uh, and... I, I, I will say one of the things that um, is of concern is, you know, my father was here before uh, the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan, the Soviet invasion. And uh, he told me that people have changed in America. 
And I asked him why. And he goes, when we first came to this country and, you know, we didn't understand how to speak English properly. We had thick accents and we'd go to a grocery store and buy something and mispronounce something. Um, a woman would tap me on the shoulder and say, excuse me, sir, this is how you pronounce it. This is what you can do teaching him. And I say that we need to put more emphasis on that because he says today, if I mispronounce something and he's a senior and, and you know, he tends to, to do things uh, his way, he said that today they will turn around and say, learn English and cuss him out. Right. And that is within 40 years of American history, right, of how somebody who's been in the Bay Area for the majority of those 40 years is feeling that people are changing. And maybe that is because of the political rhetoric that's out there, but we need to regain and recontrol that message of who are we? We need to have more compassion. So I think that's the biggest thing, that we can all control our own actions. Thank you. Definitely. And a very special thank you to our distinguished panel, Dr. Karen Ferguson, Executive Director of the Northern California Branch of the International Rescue Committee, Karaman Maman, Doctor of Judicial Science and International Legal Systems, Hassan El Mazri, filmmaker, and Aisha Wahab, human rights activist and Hayward City Council member. We also thank our audience's both here, your heroes too, as well as those listening to the recording on the internet. I'm Michael Pappas, Executive Director of the San Francisco Interfaith Council, helping refugees welcome the stranger. Now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, celebrating 116 years of enlightened discussion, is adjourned. Thank you.